Alright, so this is our third message in Partakers of the Divine Nature. We did the first one the first Sunday after Epiphany. This is now the third Sunday after Epiphany. Um, the idea comes from, because I didn't, I don't remember growing up hearing a lot of talk about sharing in God's nature. I was always told that Mormons are wrong and that we will not become gods. And I agree with, well, they say we become gods, but they're wrong. We're not going to become gods. But we do get to share in God's nature. And I don't remember hearing a lot of teachings on this when I was growing up. So that's what we're looking at for until Lent, until we begin our journey toward Easter. Um, so it comes from this. It comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And that's where Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's where the phraseology comes from. Now, to clarify... Partaking in God's nature does not mean we share in his essence. He's created, I'm uncreated. He's unchanging, I'm changing. He's unlimited, I'm limited. And those boundaries will always exist. They will never change. I will always be created. I will never become uncreated. So I don't become God's essence. But I can become his likeness. As Genesis told us, he made us in his image and in his likeness. That likeness we lost in the fall. That likeness was brought to us through Christ. That likeness is being imbued in us, in our connection, our baptism in Christ. So the likeness is being restored. So that's where we started. We started with his baptism. Matthew chapter 3. We learned that we are baptized into Christ, which means we're baptized into the divine nature. Then we looked at the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. Uh, the Beatitudes showed us what the divine nature looks like. It looks like blessedness and like flourishing. And these virtues, it looks like blessed and flourishing virtues. These virtues come from God, they're of his nature, and these specific eight that Jesus teaches are the eight that he exemplifies in his life. So we called them, the eight virtues of Christ-likeness. And they're arrayed for us like a ladder, so that the first is the most important starting point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, until you climb up to peacemaking, and ultimately to the blessed, joyful acceptance of persecution. That's the ultimate virtue of Christ-likeness in your life. So tonight, we look at what the divine nature is. We see what it looks like. It looks like these virtues. Tonight, Jesus is going to tell us that the divine nature is perfect. This is what he says in verse 48. 5 verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whoa, come again? Perfect? Like God. He didn't just say perfect in your terms. Mine might be pretty low. Perfect like God. Your Father is perfect. How, how is this possible? How do we partake in a divine nature that is perfect? Fortunately, Jesus teaches 
much before he gets to this verse. But let me, before we jump in, this is a startling verse. You must be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Let's eliminate right off the bat some false ways to look at this and show you some good ways to look at this. Okay, let's clarify this in three ways. First, first clarification is that when Jesus says this, he's not spewing idolistic gas. That's what C.S. Lewis reminds us. Hear what he says. C.S. Lewis says, The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. Sounds impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said in the Bible that we were gods, and he is going, not God, but little likenesses of him, and that he is going to make good his words. If we let him, key, if we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest, filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. So when he says that you will be a god or goddess, he's not saying you will become your own individual god. He's saying that you will reflect the divine nature back to him in a lesser scale. But that's what he's saying. If we let him, God will actually work this into us. This is what, according to C.S. Lewis, is meant by be perfect. So then he finishes, this process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Close quote. Man. So that right there eliminates us to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean perfect. He just meant ideally we'd be perfect, but not really humans. Whoa, okay, what's going on here? Lewis clarifies, he warns us to say, Jesus meant what he said. He's actually going to work himself into us if we let him. Second clarification is that perfect may not be the best translation of the word here. In the Greek, it's teleos. Perfect is teleos. That may, perfect may not be the perfect translation for that. As we will see, it's possibly better to read that as holy, but we'll get there in just a second. Um, by the way, the reason that that's not the best word, perfect, uh, is because for us, perfect makes us think of sinlessness. If, if, if Sonia's perfect, oh, she's sinless. And we say, and we are quickly, we're quick to say, no, she's not. All of us are quick to say, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, that's, so that's why perfect may not be the best translation of that word, because it makes us think of one thing when Jesus might have been saying the other thing. And then our final clarification is that um, Jesus says these words in a context. In a context. He says, 548, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, as the summary statement of what he starts to say in 5 verse 17. So in other words, we did the Beatitudes. He opens his sermon with the Beatitudes, verses 4 through 16. And then he begins the core of his teaching, 
in verse 17. And he summarizes the first part of his teaching in 48. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So what we're actually looking at is a summary. So we need to see the context. What is he saying before we jump into, ah, I must somehow work perfection into my life. Now let's see what Jesus is teaching, okay? So naturally, we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at the context and then we're going to conclude how indeed does becoming perfect, what does that look like in our lives? Some people have probably already tuned off online because the language is difficult. Brothers and sisters, we're looking at Jesus' teaching and we're taking his word seriously. Wrestle with what you can. This is what we're going to do. However, I believe that when we get to the end, we will say, wow, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I hope. I can only do so much. <laughs> the context. All right, let's begin. Verse 5, verse 17. He, uh, in 17 through 20, verses 17 to 20, he is demanding whole person righteousness. He's demanding whole person righteousness. So let's read it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, or we would probably say like a comma or a period, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, hear, hear, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And everyone's mouth there at the mount where he was teaching dropped open. You mean those guys? The Pharisees, whom everyone looked up to as the keepers of the law, and the ones who pressured everybody else to keep it. They were holy. These were holy men. They knew the scriptures. The scribes memorized them because they wrote the scriptures by hand. The scribes and Pharisees are the picture. When you ask someone, who is your father, your spiritual father in your life? Who do you admire? The people say, Rabbi so-and-so, and Rabbi John, and Rabbi Michael. And Jesus just said that. He just said, unless you're better than them, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so now we're in trouble. We know he's going to end with the word perfect. And now he's telling us that our righteousness must exceed some of the most righteous people in the righteous nation of Israel. What in the world is going on here? Okay, so this is what we need to see. The righteousness of the Pharisees. Let's start there. When he says that our righteousness must exceed theirs, what is their righteousness? Probably a good starting point. The righteousness of the Pharisees was a skin-deep righteousness. As you read the rest of Matthew, 
you will recognize that Jesus often tells them, look, your outer appearance is beautiful, but inside. He talks about the tomb. They're like whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but inside. Dead men's bones. And he tells them to clean the inside of the cup, not just the outside. So when he's saying your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, we must understand that what the Pharisees possessed, even though they were admired, what they possessed was righteousness that was only skin deep. It was outward. It was morality and obedience to rules. It was not integrity. It was not the virtue of the heart. There was nothing in here that was righteous. It's not to say they were evil inside. Many of them were very good people. But their righteousness never went beyond what they do. It never became who they are. So what Jesus then tells us is that his righteousness, as we're going to see, is whole person righteousness. What Jesus is interested in is not just that he gets you to behave. That is so elementary. He wants his likeness, his nature, his, dare we say it now, perfection inside each one of us so that the righteousness isn't just skin deep, but it's whole person, body and soul. Outside and inside, morality and integrity, what I do and who I am. He wants his virtue growing and flourishing inside of us. That's how we exceed, in other words, super pious religious folk. Which is the people whom society thinks about when they think of religion. We are to be people who are not showy with these things, but are truly deeply inside from every fiber of our being. The makeup of our soul is indeed the presence of God within us. This is greater righteousness. So it's whole person living in accordance with God's nature. Jesus is righteousness. Whole person, it's not part of me is this and then part of me is that. Whole person living in accordance with his nature. So that I, from all parts of me, am trying to live in alignment with his nature. Whew. All right. C.S. Lewis put a beautiful illustration like this. The difference between Pharisee righteousness and whole person righteousness is the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or stain, which soaks right through. There are many things you can wash off your garment, but there are some that literally soak in and become part of the garment, and it's not coming off. That is the kind of righteousness that he is trying to massage into our soul. So this is what partaking in the divine nature looks like. All right, so... This is also, this whole person righteousness is how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. You notice when, we, when he, his first words were, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. So, Jeremiah, for example, foresaw a day when God would no longer have people externally trying to copy the law of God, 
but when God's law would actually be written on their hearts. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is what Jesus means by I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I am bringing righteousness into the heart. He's not doing something new. Jesus isn't stepping on the scene and saying, forget all that, this is new. He's fulfilling that long story which had been told and saying, now's the time through me through which this is going to happen. Nor is he saying, oh, this is now plan B. Forget Moses. That was plan A and it failed. I'm plan B. No, Jesus is the completion of that which God started with Israel. He's finishing through Christ. So when God comes, God is a God who, who, who lived with Israel. But now in Jesus, God's not just living with his people. He's living in his people It's not our nature, his nature. He's now bringing us into his nature. This is what Jesus is completing. He's bringing the story one step further. If you want to think about what he's doing here, is think about how when Eve was promised at the fall of humanity, God told her, look, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Through your seed, that serpent will die. So, through Eve's seed, we see Abraham. And we see this seed, this lineage, starting with Abraham. Think of, therefore, Eve as the seed, and then Abraham and the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve tribes. They're like the roots of the seed. The seed has to grow roots first. Then the stalk begins to grow, and the stalk pierces through the dirt, and the stalk reaches up for the sun. This is when David becomes king of Israel. The whole seed is now growing up. The kingdom of Israel is moving to its fruition. But the kingdom of Israel couldn't quite get to the fruition. So what happens is Christ blossoms as the flower that the seed was always meant to be. You plant a seed to get the flower. This is what Christ is He is the flowering of the original seed of the whole plant. And so, he has uh, created us to partake in his divine nature. So this righteousness, that his whole person, was always intended by God. It is now coming to fruition through his work in Jesus. So that's what he's calling us to, is a whole person righteousness, not a skin-deep righteousness. Now, in verses 21 through 47, he's going to demonstrate whole person righteousness for us. He's going to pull out from the Old Testament six passages as examples. Here's what whole person righteousness looks like. And each time, there's going to be this pattern. First, he's going to tell them what the Old Testament said. But then he's going to teach them what God's original intent in that law always has been. You've heard it was said, and everyone's imagining how a Pharisee would keep it. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, yes, and whole person righteousness will go one step further. So he's not abolishing any of this. He's saying yes, and. 
And then he will close each example with a practical way to do it. Okay, so let's go to the first one. Anger, murder. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But, now that word but in the Greek is de, D-E. And it is translated either but or and. It's the translator's choice. Here, I will propose to you that when Jesus says but, it sounds like he's discontinuing God's law. We just read that he's fulfilling the law. It's best to read that word but as and. You've heard it was said, do not murder. He's not saying no to that. He's saying yes to that. And I also say to you. So I'm going to... Despite what your Bible says, we're going to read and, because the Greek word validly reads and, okay? So verse 22. And I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Notice the escalation there. So, if you are offering... Now, here's the practical. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Old Testament said, don't murder. Yes, and don't hate your brother. External righteousness says, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pull the trigger. I'm not going to swing the sword. But whole person righteousness says, I'm not even going to think ill or say ill of you. There's going to be nothing from within and without. So Jesus gives an example. You're going to fall into this because we're not sinless. So when you have something against your brother and they're at the altar, that's worship, he's talking about the Jewish context of the temple, you remember that? This is so important that you don't wait till worship's done. You go right away. Right away. So, brothers and sisters, when we are in prayer at 4 o'clock, and we are asking Christ to examine our hearts, and we're confessing our sin to him, and there we recognize that we have something against someone, or someone has something against us, his commandment to us is to leave prayer aside and to go to the person, call the person, reconcile with the person. This is whole person righteousness. But I didn't do anything bad to him. Well, fine. If you want to be a Pharisee, you're good. But Christ is calling us to partake in his divine nature. It cannot even be in the heart. Go and cleanse. It's that urgent. Is it really, Pastor Brandon? Well, Jesus closes by saying, if you don't reconcile, you're going to end up in prison until you pay the last penny. I don't know if he had like a literal situation there, but this is true of your soul. You will imprison yourself as long as you remain unreconciled with a brother or a sister. Pastor Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, told the Corinthian church there, you can look it up on later, 
he said, look, I've heard there are divisions when you take communion, and I partly believe it. He tells them to examine themselves so that they don't take communion in an unworthy manner. Put this together. Taking communion in an unworthy manner, I've heard there are divisions among you. Unreconciliation, you should not come to the altar of the Lord's table and take communion if you're unreconciled. Why? Because Paul then says, this is why there are some among you who are ill and even dying. Apparently, Paul believes, therefore we should too, that if you proceed in continuing to come to the Lord's table without reconciling with our brothers and sisters, you are bringing condemnation on yourself and it may manifest itself in illness. Yeah, judgment. He said, anger in the heart will lead to judgment. Sounds like Paul agreed. Number two, example number two. You have heard that it was, this is verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So that's the Old Testament. Verse 28. And, so yes, and I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, it's not doing the deed. It's where it begins. Practical application, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Woo-wee! So, I don't think the point here is that we're to take this application literally, lest we would have seen a lot of apostles running around eyeless and handless. What Jesus wants us to do, though, is to take it seriously. He's calling the hearers into the stark, whoa, it's that serious. Hell is on the line here. So he's calling us to seriously examine what we must amputate from our lives in order to have whole person righteousness. Oh no, on the outside, I'm pure. I don't do anything. Cool, Pharisee. But on the inside, there's adultery everywhere. Amputate what must go. Internet, television, music. These are huge today. I am appalled at the secular music I hear now. That, and I know from my students, I don't know if Patrick knows this too, not him personally, but from his fellow classmates, music today is horrendous, and Christians listen to this because it's just a beat. It's pretty much pornographic, much of the music today. Watch what you listen to. Watch what you watch. It's just the news, but what are the commercials? It's just sports, but what is being promoted in between the whistles? There is a lot at stake here. The internet, maybe it needs to be closed down for a minute. Jesus is saying to take this seriously. One more consideration. Are there people in your life who are encouraging you to think, to talk in a certain way that's not bringing purity of heart? Paul went that far. He told the Corinthians, I hear there's someone amongst you boasting about a sexual immorality. I command you to give him over to Satan. Excommunicate him from your presence. 
This is how serious Paul and Jesus are about these. St. Methodus, Methodus, <laughs> uh, I think I had a typo there. Um, Methodius, I think is what I'm supposed to say. St. Methodius of Olympus, he was 3rd and 4th century, so this is pretty far back. This is what he said about it. It is not the fruit of adultery that he commands us to cast out, but it's seed. So what is the seed of adultery in your life? What is the seed of lust? And before we move on, lust gets a bad rap because it's 90% of the time tied to sexual sins. But lust is really a strong craving. Some of us may have grown past the lusts of our youth for sex, but now your lust is for status or for moving up in your job or it's for possessions. We must ruthlessly dig out the seeds of this weed. Number three, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say unto you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so the law allowed divorce if you had a certificate. Jesus is pretty much saying, look, you might be legally okay, but that doesn't make you spiritually okay. That paper might validate what you're doing, but that doesn't mean God validates what you're doing. Now, Jesus teaches more about this in Matthew 19. You can look more about his teaching on divorce. That's probably why it's so short here. But um, we're also going to be brief for the sake of time and length of text here. We're not doing a message on marriage. But what we need to remember is that what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching whole person righteousness. In Israel, it was very easy to get a divorce. If you didn't like your wife anymore, you could go marry again. Here's the other problem. Women could not live on their own. They could not survive single. They depended back then upon a man for their livelihood. So if I divorce someone just because I'm tired of you or I like someone better or I just need a change in life, I am actually making this woman who never asked for this to marry someone else so I am causing her to commit adultery. And then Jesus says, if I remarry, I'm committing adultery. The whole heart of this is that we stop looking for loopholes, I'm technically okay, and to start thinking about the effects, the consequences that our decisions produce. You can't just cleanly divorce that woman, Jesus says, because now you've put her in a position where she must commit adultery. You have done that to her. Whereas Jesus is saying the judgment's not on her, it's on you, even though you didn't commit the adultery. But I didn't make them do that. But are your actions pushing them in a certain way? Whole person righteousness is not checking off boxes saying, I'm right, I'm right, I'm pure, I'm pure. It's considering how all of life is affected by what I am doing. That's the presence of Christ in us. So much more to say on that, but this is not the time. Number four, verse 33. Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Yes, I say to you. Oh, uh, yes, and I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So if you're a Pharisee and you want to make oaths and you keep oaths, great. I'm telling you, greater righteousness, whole person righteousness, doesn't have to make oaths. 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let, here is the practical, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. I believe this is where our Christian aversion to cursing, curse words, swearing, and all the like, comes from. There really isn't actually anything unholy about four-letter words. It's the way they're used, right? So there's a time that the word damn is very appropriate. And some people are going to be super offended that I even would say that. But Paul says it. He tells people to be damned who are teaching another gospel. That's Galatians chapter 1. There, what it means is condemnation to hell. That's an actual word. It's a very strong word, isn't it? Actually, actually you didn't feel very good saying it, so if you were queasy, you can know I'm with you. Um, but we can understand that where our queasiness comes from is because of Jesus' teaching. If you say something... Make sure you are living such a life of integrity that it is meaningful to all who hear it. Some people use profanity because there is such a lack of integrity in their life that they have to heap words upon what they're saying to make it more real. This is why certain words become adjectives for every other sentence in the world. And I'm being very vague. I'm just trying to keep it kosher here. Because there is such a lack of fullness of their soul, they are not whole person righteous, that they have to create meaning in their words by using other words. Or let's just use the innocence of saying, no, I didn't do it, I swear. Huh. Why are you swearing now? So usually when you say you didn't do it, you don't really mean it, do you? Integrity must. N- integrity never needs to oaths, to use oaths or to swear. This is where Jesus says, just be the kind of person that when you say yes, people say, whoa, he means it. And here's our worldview on words. In the beginning, God created the world with words. And he didn't say, oh, I should have said, or oh, I should have put an explicative there to make it more meaningful. What he said happened. And then Jesus came as the embodiment of that word. So we, therefore, take our words seriously. Brothers and sisters, let's get used to meaning what we say and don't say anything until you mean it. We are in a culture saturated with triviality. No wonder we have to use so many words to make our words heard. Not for the Christian. Not for the follower of the word made flesh. Number five, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, or and, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Mm. In my experience... This is the one teaching most Christians resist. When I talk with people, and they talk about wanting to hit people back, or about how to react in violent situations, they refuse 
vehemently this teaching. Turn the other cheek. Jesus is not asking you to be steamrolled, okay? He's not saying just keep on taking hits. He's quoting the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, which is meant to say that retaliation should never have escalation. So if Michael takes my eye, I take his eye and no more. Jesus is saying, okay, that's righteous, that's fair. But greater righteousness, whole person righteousness, there's something deeper within you that doesn't even want to see Michael lose his eye, even if you lost your eye. This is the idea, is that Jesus is saying retaliation is a completely different ballgame for the Christian. Seriously, Jesus? I think he's serious. When he says, when they take your tunic, give them your cloak, when he says, turn the other cheek if they strike you, these things happened to him. Matthew 26, verse 67. His accusers spat on his face and struck him and slapped him. What did he do? Isaiah 50, verse 6. The prophet foresaw that he would give his cheeks so that they could pull out his beard. What did he do? Oh, you're going to get it. He didn't do that. When his crucifiers divided his garments in Matthew 27, 35, they divided his garments. He didn't say, just you wait till I rise. He let them. But now, how do you apply passages like this? So if they want my, if they want my cardigan, I'm supposed to take my pants off too? Please don't. I will never ask for your cardigan if that's the way it goes. That's not what he's saying. He's not asking us to take it that far. He's asking us to consider one of the virtues he taught us earlier. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Because the virtuous person, whole person righteousness, has the kind of mastery over themselves not to give an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And the people that can master themselves and their anger and their retaliation and their sense of needing to justify themselves, those are the people who inherit the earth. Let's put this in other words. Those are the people who master the coming world with Christ. He's looking for people of a totally different sort than the ones who master the kingdoms of this world. There's a lot more to be said on this one, too. I'd love to chat with anyone, um, but that would be a whole separate message, and it doesn't really fit with looking at the divine nature. So we'll move on on this one, too. Um, But sixth and finally, in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pause. The Old Testament does not say hate your enemy. What probably ended up happening is what happens in our own nation. You're under oppression for so long that you begin to think it's patriotic to hate your oppressors, and then it's only one more step to the point where you think it's religious to hate your oppressors because they hate the God who's supposed to be giving you a kingdom. So it's probably a saying that was spinning around, and Jesus is addressing that. So you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I say to you, love your enemies. So what did the Old Testament say? Love your enemies. Leviticus 19. Yes, love your enemies, or love your neighbor, excuse me. Love your neighbor, yes. And your enemy too. So Pharisees would love their neighbors. They love everybody. They're so kind. They're so great. They're so cheerful. But Jesus is saying, whole person righteousness 
of course loves their neighbor. It's no virtue to like people who are like you. Whole person righteousness looks for how to be right with people who hate them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. When he says be sons of your Father who is in heaven, that's partaking of the divine nature. Romans uses the same language, Romans 8. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, who were considered totally unclean and pagan by the Jews, do not even Gentiles, and they were, do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. We'll just say this. This sixth example balances the fifth example. We're not to just be passively wronged. We're actually to engage with the wrong that's done to us. But Jesus says, not by retaliation, but by restoration. Our enemies are opportunities to develop Christ-likeness. And that's the eighth and highest virtue on the ladder of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, that's when, at the summation of Jesus calling us to a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, which is not a skin-deep righteousness, but a whole-person righteousness that's living in accord with the nature of God. After calling for that, giving us six examples of what that looks like, and how it's greater than skin-deep righteousness, he then says, you should be perfect, as your Heavenly Father in Heaven is perfect. It's making a little bit more sense here. So teleos, this word perfect, Greek teleos, it does not refer to sinlessness, that's what our English implies, but rather it is referring to that whole person righteousness that lives in accord with the nature of God. Notice you'll be, uh, as your Father in Heaven is perfect. So there's a likeness here, okay? We're living in likeness according to His nature, so it's this whole person righteousness. But here we go. Let's look a little bit deeper at the word, teleos. In the Jewish, um, in the Jewish Bible, when they translated it to Greek, they took this word teleos and used it to refer to these to refer to these definitions. Teleos in the Greek translation of the Old Testament refers to the holy, the unblemished, the undivided. The holy, the unblemished, the undivided. And to shalom, that's that great Jewish word for holistic peace, to flourishing and to wholeness. Are you seeing a picture here? Whole person righteousness. Teleos means unblemished and undivided flourishing and wholeness. But here's one more thing to note. Teleos sounds very similar to the Greek word for holy. Hagias. Teleos. Hagias. Now, keep that in mind. Teleos, perfect. Hagias, holy. Now, listen to our passage. 
You must therefore be perfect, teleos, as your heavenly Father is perfect, teleos. Now listen to Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, hagios, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy, hagios. I hope you're hearing the resonance, the parallelism, that Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19.2, but changing the word from hagios to teleos. You shall therefore be holy or perfect as your heavenly Father is holy or perfect. But why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just use the word hagias, holy? Why does he go to teleos, perfect? Because, brothers and sisters, and because he's crying to the crowds, I am calling you to a righteousness that's greater than the so-called holiness, hagias, of the Pharisees. This is beyond that. So rather than using a word they would use which would misrepresent what I'm saying as what they're saying, I need to make cleavage here. I need to separate me from them so I'm going to startle you again by changing the word you thought was coming. Yes, we must be holy. What? He didn't say holy. Because I'm calling you to whole person righteousness. And as we're looking at teleos, is often used for the word holy in some places of the Old Testament because what holiness is, is wholeness. That's what holiness is. When something's holy, you devote it for a specific cause. All the utensils in the tabernacle, the priests in the temple, they are devoted to that cause. You aren't going to see them turning the tabernacle into a warehouse. Well, I mean, they did that, and Jesus judged it. But it is devoted to the worship of God. That's holiness. It's set apart for something. It's not going to be used for two different purposes. So, holiness is oneness, it's unity, it's integrity. This is, again, this is whole person righteousness. It doesn't divide itself into, I do this sometimes, and I do that sometimes. So sometimes I use for God, sometimes I use for myself. Holy is to be holy devoted. He's asking us, when he says to be perfect, he's asking us to be whole in our righteousness inside and out, and to be wholly devoted to our Father, and to participating in his divine nature, and to seeing that his virtues are coming into us. That is what he's asking for us to do. Devote ourselves entirely to this cause. Because there's no other reason we are made We were made in his image and likeness. And Christ is saying, come on, you love sin, but it's not worth it. Okay, so be perfect. That's our concluding application. Be perfect. (laughs) Help. Uh, Here's how it works. Don't despair, brothers and sisters. Jesus is not asking you in your human nature to just pull yourself up and do better and try harder Too many of us do that all the time. He's not asking us to do that at all. What he's doing, rather, is Jesus knows, Paul will later articulate this for us, this is done by grace. It's not done by my works, it's done by grace. But here's how grace works. Grace comes to us, and we may either resist it, or we may receive it. When I resist God's grace, I'm on my own, and I do what I want. Remember Lewis warned us, If we let him, he will turn us into creatures like him. If we let him. But when I receive his grace, 
It means that I am cooperating with his grace. It's working in me the nature of God. Receiving is cooperating. And when I cooperate with the grace of God, the virtues of God grow in me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And so forth. And when the virtues of God grow in me, I become teleos, like my Father in heaven is teleos. Not sinless, but moving toward the aim of sharing in his likeness. That is what we mean by perfection. And that's what we're striving for. So, perfection, brothers and sisters is an ongoing process. I think we struggle with this word because we think of perfection as something we attain. It's like some static location out there. Oh, I'm going to get to... I made it! I'm perfect! Not true. Perfection is an ongoing process and it will keep on going into eternity. What happens in heaven? Do we just sit back like we made it? No, brothers and sisters. If our God is eternal, if he's limitless, if he's uncreated, and we will never become his essence, we can grow forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never reach the limit of his being. And we can keep on seeing that we're so different. And this is what perfection looks like. It looks like the continual direction and progression toward his nature while we never even get there. Forever and ever, we will be coming more like him and yet never being him. This is unfathomable and it's wonderful. Here's how St. Gregory of Nyssa put it. I'm going to quote him, then I'm going to close with one quote by Lewis, which is going to nail what you need to do right now. (laughs) St. Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century said this really, really, really profound, amazing thing. It is impossible for human nature ever to stop moving. We're always changing, is what he's saying. It has been made of its creator ever to keep changing. Hence, when we prevent it from, being, from using its energy on trifles and keep it on all sides from doing what it should not, so when we're doing that with our nature, we protect it from evil and from doing sin, then it necessarily will move in a straight path towards the truth, towards God. So thus, in a certain sense, our humanity is constantly being created, ever-changing for the better in its growth and perfection. Along these lines, no limit can be envisaged, nor can its progressive growth and perfection be limited by any term. We can keep, he's saying, we can keep growing and growing and growing and moving deeper and deeper into the divine nature. In this way, he continues... In its state of perfection, no matter how great or perfect it may be, it is merely the beginning of a greater and superior stage. So if you ever think, oh, I am so wonderful and perfect, I am so much like God, you have only scratched the surface of what it's like to be Christ-like. And for a million years, as we continue to progress and gaze upon his likeness and be transformed into his likeness from glory to glory, like Paul says, for a million years even, you are still such a minute reflection of who he is, even though you're a million years better than you were. And you thought Christianity was boring? That you did the altar call and now what? I'm waiting for heaven? It's insane. We have shrunk our God and our faith to pebbles in a pocket or 
problems in a shoe that we can't wait to empty out. Okay, so the implications of this, to quote Lewis now one more time, he had such... This is where we go home and we think, Christ, how can I grow in you? So if this is true, if we're ever changing and forever and ever going to be in this progression toward perfection, we must consider who we are now. Lewis says, There are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if we were going to live only 70 years. But I should be bothered about them very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Now, news, you're not going to live to 70. You're going to live beyond that forever. So Lewis is saying, if you're going to live forever, pay attention. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. What he's saying is, if right now I set this course and the projection of my life is, I'm just going to continue to harbor anger for my brother. You might think it's a very small thing for 70 years, and it may be. Maybe one relationship went south, and that's okay with you. But if that projection is carried into eternity, that's going to look monstrous. Lewis is warning us, he's calling us to sober attention that what we do today matters because we get to partake in the divine nature or we get to opt out. We must ask ourselves, is whole person righteousness, am I living in accordance with God's nature or am I not? It's a question of eternal consequence. Not just am I going to heaven or hell, because you're not saved by your works. But eternal consequence to what is my trajectory forever going to look like? How far will I be when Christ returns? I don't want to be embarrassed in the back saying, wait up, Paul! (laughs) Although he's already way ahead of me. But wouldn't we want to jump like in the race, wouldn't we want to just keep striving for the line together, seeing Christ being worked in us even now? So, brothers and sisters, let's be partakers of the divine nature by cooperating with the grace of God at work in our lives. Jesus told us that this is the blessed, flourishing life. Why would we hold back? Father, we ask that you work your righteousness in us, that we could live from the inside out, your nature, grow your virtues in us. And as we prepare for communion, know that to all who receive Christ and who believe in his name, he gives the power to become children of God, born not of blood, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but of God. If you are not a believer and have not received Christ, tonight, receive him. Talk to me after the communion, and we can ensure that that can happen.